Welcome to the Dermalogic Surgery Journal podcast for June. I'm the editor, Naomi Lawrence. In this month's journal, there is a survey study looking at patient preference in regards to virtual versus in-person visits with their surgeon. In it, they found a preference for in-person visits associated with increasing age done in 2020 to 2021. Although one cannot deny the value of face-to-face interaction in many encounter types, my experience is that even in the last year, patients have become more adept and comfortable with virtual encounters, such that this sentiment may be evolving. In addition, there's an excellent review of 26 articles on vascular occlusion events threatening the skin barrier by a group of experienced cosmetic physicians. In this, they review the signs and symptoms of vascular compromise as well as confounding factors and a consensus approach to the acute treatment of these events to their resolution. As always, thank you for listening and have a happy surgery day. This is Erica Levitt reviewing the article MOC31 Antibody Immunolabeling During Mohs Surgery by first author Edward Bay and senior author Satori Iwamoto. The article starts by providing the background that BRRR-EP4 is another antibody that binds epithelial cell adhesion molecule, shortened as EPCAM, and has proven to be helpful in diagnosing BCCs. The focus of this paper is another antibody that also targets EPCAM called MOC31, and there's some evidence that this antibody may be superior to BRRR-EP4. The goal of this paper was to evaluate the feasibility of MOC31 labeling of BCCs and other cutaneous tumors in both Mohs frozen sections and permanent sections. There were several analyses performed in this study. First, the author stained 29 frozen section specimens of BCCs and 19 permanent specimens of BCCs with MOC31 to evaluate the degree of labeling. Four of the frozen sections were stained with manual immunostaining technique and the rest were stained with automated technique. All of the BCCs had at least moderate staining with MOC31. The frozen sections had more background labeling of benign structures such as epidermis and sebaceous glands, but these were mild staining. The stain did perform well regardless of histologic subtype of the BCC. Secondly, the authors analyzed all of the past skin tissue previously labeled with MOC31 at their institution between 2008 to 2010, which included 23 non-BCC cutaneous tumors, including MAX, SCCs, and Merkel cell carcinomas. Five of the 13 SCCs had moderate or greater MOC31 staining. One of two Merkel cell carcinomas and one sebaceous carcinoma also had high MOC31 staining. Lastly, eight permanent section BCC biopsies were stained with both MOC31 and BRRR-EP4 for blinded comparison. All BCCs had strong staining with both immunostaining. Both stains had occasional focal labeling of follicles and more consistent staining of eccrine glands. Overall, this data support that MOC31 may be a feasible immunostain to reliably stain BCCs in both frozen and permanent sections and could be an alternative to BRRR-EP4. More data will be needed to prove that this stain is reliable and has a clinical impact on outcomes before routinely implementing MOC31 staining for BCC-MOS cases.
This is Deirdre Connolly reviewing the original investigation, Evaluation of Pain After Mohs Micrographic Surgery, a Prospective Study. First author, Afir Shiraz. Lead author, Av Shalom Shalom. The study is a two-year prospective observational study, including patients who underwent Mohs and who've rated the severity of their post-op pain once daily until removal of sutures and who documented their analgesics used. Patients rated the severity of their post-op pain on a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being the lowest and 10 the highest, and were instructed to document the maximal pain level experienced that day. A total of 2,178 patients were included, and pain levels were found to be the strongest on the first post-operative day with a mean pain score of 1.55, and pain gradually subsiding on the consecutive days after surgery. Authors found no difference between women and men in relation to the level of pain felt on post-op day one and two. However, there was a significant difference in pain reported by women and men on post-op day three, with 21% of women reporting pain levels of two or higher compared with only 17% of men. The site of the skin lesion, method of reconstruction, and number of stages of Mohs were significantly related to increased post-op pain on post-op days one to four on univariate and multivariate analyses. Patients reported three to four-fold higher mean pain levels on post-op days one and one to three when surgical site involved the scalp, forehead, nose, and ears compared with other sites. Repairs with flaps and skin grafts were associated with elevated pain on post-op days one and two with split thickness skin grafting causing the highest level of pain whereas primary closure caused the least. The most common analgesics used in this study was diperone, a non-narcotic analgesic that's been banned in the United States, followed by paracetamol, also known as acetaminophen. Post-op consumption of analgesics differed significantly between men and women, with women consuming more analgesics on post-op days one to three, but this difference was not correlated with age. This is Christy Regula reviewing rare cutaneous malignancies in skin of color by first author Daniel Mosilai and senior author Ashley Wysong. Skin cancers are most commonly seen in the Caucasian population, and as such, most research has generally focused on this group. This has led to a poor characterization of skin cancers in those with skin of color. There's a scarcity of information regarding the clinical characteristics of rare cutaneous malignancies in skin of color, which can lead to delay in diagnoses and poorer outcomes. This study aimed to review and compile the differences in epidemiology, clinical presentation, histology, treatments, and outcomes in three rare skin cancers, dermatofibroma sarcoma protuberans, Merker cell carcinoma, and sebaceous carcinoma. To do so, between February 2018 and August 2020, PubMed searches were performed with keywords DFSP, Merkel cell carcinoma, sebaceous carcinoma, along with terms describing race, including African American, Black, Hispanic, and Asian. All published literature was included with no date restriction. Upon review of included studies, African Americans were found to have the highest incidence of DFSP approximately twice that of Caucasians. Truncal lesions are more common in African-American and Korean patients, and truncal lesions present more often in African-Americans. 
The Bender tumor, a pigmented form of DFSP, is over seven times more likely to occur in African-American patients than Caucasians. Hispanics have a higher incidence of secondary surgery for DFSP, suggesting that they have a higher recurrence rate. African-American patients are more likely to receive radiation and surgery rather than surgery alone. And the evidence for mortality rates between races was mixed. For patients diagnosed with Merkel cell carcinoma, 1.2% were African-American, 2.1% Hispanic, 0.8% Asian Pacific Islander, and 1.2% other non-Caucasian. Location on the head and neck are most common in Caucasian, Hispanic, and Asian cohorts. While sun-protected areas, especially the lower extremities, are more common in African-Americans. African-Americans are more likely to have metastatic disease on initial presentation and worse overall clinical outcomes. For patients diagnosed with sebaceous carcinoma, the majority of ca are Caucasian. 5.5% are Asian Pacific Islander, 3% are Black, and 55 to 13% are other or unknown racial groups. Caucasian and Asians have a similar five-year survival, while African-American patients have a higher all-cause mortality. This review demonstrates nuances in epidemiology, presentation, histology, treatments, and outcomes in DFSP, Merkel cell carcinoma, and sebaceous carcinoma. This is Michael Renzi reviewing the original article, Cheek Donor Site for Full Thickness Skin Graft Repair of the Nasal ALA, Outcomes of a Retrospective Cohort Study by first author Eric Du and senior author Ramona Bashad. Full thickness skin grafts are one of the most efficient and commonly used closure options for defects on the nasal ALA. Donor sites for full thickness skin grafts are selected based on tissue match, which includes color, thickness, actinic damage, and sebaceous quality. Common donor sites for nasal repair include the preauricular, postauricular, supraclavicular, clavicular, contral bowl, and glabellar areas. Unfortunately, these distal donor sites often have significant color and textural mismatch when compared with the graft recipient site. To overcome this mismatch, the utility of the nasofacial sulcus adjacent to the nasal sidewall and medial cheek as a donor site for full thickness skin grafts of the nasal ala has been described with positive results including superior tissue match and improved ease of the procedure in a single surgical field. To evaluate aesthetic outcomes and complications of nasal alar defects repaired with full thickness skin grafts from the medial cheek, a retrospective chart review of Mohs surgery patients who had a full thickness skin graft repair of the nasal ala between January 2015 and August 2020 was performed. Cosmesis was rated using a visual analog Likert type scale by a facial plastic surgeon, a Mohs surgeon, and a plastic surgeon using baseline, defect, and follow-up visit photographs. This scale ranged from 0 to 100, for which a score of 0 indicated the worst possible result, 25 a bad result, 50 an acceptable result, 75 a good result, and 100 a perfect result. 69 patients with full thickness skin graft repairs of nasal ALR defects met inclusion criteria. However, the raters had trouble scoring grafts that were part of a combination repair. As a result, the authors performed a sub-analysis of 59 full thickness skin grafts with 46 from the cheek donor site and 13 from non-cheek sites. Mean scores of 67.1 and 66.2 in the cheek versus non-cheek groups respectively 
with a non-significant p-value of 0.89. Mean post-operative defect size among the overall sample was 1.5 centimeters squared, which was similar between the cheek and non-cheek donor cohorts, increasing defect size by both longest dimension and area through elliptical assumption was observed to be significantly weakly correlated with lower overall cosmetic scores. A third of the patients required scar refinement procedures with no difference in frequency between the two cohorts. 11.6 patients developed complications. Of these, 7.8 were in the patients with grafts from the cheek donor site compared to 22.2 in the non-cheek donor site patients. This difference was not statistically significant. The substantial absolute decrease, though, suggests a type 2 error because of underpowering the non-cheek donor site cohort, though even after adding cases to the analysis, only a trend towards significance was achieved. My takeaway from this article is that the medial cheek donor site for full thickness skin graft repairs of the nasal ala provides comparable aesthetic outcomes with more commonly used donor sites, there is a potential for lower complication rates with the cheek donor site, though additional studies are needed to confirm this. This is Erica Levitt reviewing the review article, The Origin and Development of Interrupted Subcuticular Suture, an Important Technique for Achieving Optimum Wound Closure, by authors Wen Chao Zhang and Ang Zhang. This article is a review of subcuticular suturing techniques, meaning deep sutures entirely under the skin surface. For this paper, I will briefly summarize many of the suture techniques, but the illustrations in the text are very helpful to visualize the different suturing techniques, and I direct you there if interested. The paper starts by discussing the simple buried suture or planar suture, which is easy to master but does not help create wound aversion or long-term tension reduction. The buried vertical mattress suture was developed by Zatelli and Moy in 1989 and is now the most widely used subcuticular suture as it allows for better wound aversion. In this technique, the arc of the suture peaks higher in the dermis but then exits deeper in the dermis, creating more of a heart-shaped arc. The intracutaneous butterfly suture is a modification where the scalpel excision is performed obliquely to increase contact area of the wound edges. And the knot is not underneath but besides the suture loop, with the goal being better wound aversion and tension relief. Other variations to the buried vertical mattress include Sadik's and Berry's modifications where the mattress suture is not entirely buried, or there is a modification where the entire arc is within the dermis. The buried horizontal mattress suture was developed in 2004 by Alam and Goldberg and is ideal for shallow wounds or wounds where the dermis is extremely thin and the buried vertical mattress is not practical. This is similar to the buried vertical mattress suture, but the needle direction is horizontal rather than vertical. The illustration figure 3C is very helpful at demonstrating this. The setback suture was developed by Cantor in 2010 and differs from the buried vertical mattress because the needle enters and exits below the dermis. This can result in dramatic wound aversion and tension reduction. It, is per it performed well in a split scar study versus the buried vertical mattress, but it, it would be interesting to see more comparative studies in the future. Overall, this article was a good review of subcutaneous suturing techniques, and I thank the authors for their extensive research and summaries on this topic. Again, I refer you to the article for very helpful illustrations of the different techniques. 
This is Michael Renzi reviewing the original article, Patient Preferences Regarding Virtual Visits in Cutaneous Surgery in the Era of COVID-19 by first author Stephen Barilla and senior author Victoria Sharon. Amid the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, there has been a rapid shift in healthcare delivery with healthcare systems seeking an alternative method to in-person care, such as utilizing telehealth services. The authors of this article performed a survey study of 224 patients who presented to Northwell Health Department of Dermatology outpatient dermatologic surgery clinics to evaluate patient preferences regarding telehealth in dermatologic surgery for pre- and post-surgical care. They found that only 34% of respondents reported prior experience with telehealth visits. Of these patients, 68% reported a positive experience with telehealth. 87% of respondents reported feeling either safe or very safe during their dermatologic surgery appointment. With regard to COVID-19-related anxiety, 41% of respondents reported not anxious at all. Among all survey respondents, 62.1% preferred an in-person visit for their pre-surgical consultation because patients desired physical interaction with their surgeon, followed by fear of something being overlooked during a telehealth appointment. With regards to the post-surgical visit, 67.7% preferred in-person visits, once again, due to a preference for physical interaction with their surgeon, then fear of something being overlooked in a telehealth setting, and finally, increased likelihood of a better cosmetic outcome. For the pre- and post-surgical visits, telehealth is too difficult to figure out was reported as a reason for in-person preference in 17% and 14%, respectively. With this response stratified by age, it was found that 100% of patients who chose this response were older than 55 years, with 79% aged 70 years or older. In the adjusted analysis, for each 10-year increase in age, there was a 1.26-fold and a 1.12-fold increase in preference for in-person consultation and follow-up, respectively. Patients less likely to prefer in-person consultation included those currently taking immunosuppressants and those who perceive themselves as less attractive than average. My takeaway from this article was that despite potential risk factors associated with COVID, the majority of patients prefer in-person visits for pre- and post-surgical care, and the strength of this preference is directly correlated with patient age. One limitation, though, was that the authors assessed these preferences over a year ago, starting the study within five months of the COVID-19 lockdown. I believe that over the past year since the study concluded enrollment, sentiments regarding telehealth have shifted, and many patients have begun to see the convenience benefit of the technology. Hopefully, we'll we will continue to see follow-up studies to measure for possible shifting perceptions regarding telehealth. This is Christy Regula reviewing the reconstructive conundrum, repair of a large distal forearm wound with exposed tendons by first author Harib Waldeen and senior author Richard Bennett. This is the case of a 90-year-old male who presented with a well-differentiated squamous cell carcinoma on the left distal dorsal forearm. The tumor was cleared with two stages with a final defect of four by 4.7 centimeters, extending to the depth of the tendon fascia some of which was removed, exposing two extensor tendons. 
The patient's forearm skin was extremely photodamaged and thin with atrophic subcutaneous fat. Due to the exposed tendons and atrophic skin, a proximally based rhombic transposition flap with a double Z plasty was performed. Please see the article for a description of the flap design and execution. Of note, post-surgery, an arm board was used to splint the wrist and stabilize the wound for three weeks to prevent dehiscence. This is Ashley Decker reviewing the Reconstructive Conundrum Single Stage Reconstruction of a Large Mid-Helical Defect by Dr. Hakeem Sam. An 81-year-old male underwent Mohs for a basal cell carcinoma of the left ear. Clear margins were obtained in two stages, resulting in a final defect measuring 5 by 2.5 centimeters with a significant loss of the mid-helix and anti-helix. Reconstructive options in this location include helical rim advancement and wedge excisions, both which would lead to significant miniaturization of the ear. The patient was not in favor of a two-stage repair. Posterior to anterior pull-through flaps offer a single-stage option for many types of auricular defects, especially those of the conchal bowl. The author decided to proceed with a modified single-staged pull-through mastoid flap with the following modifications. Elevation of the mastoid flap like a book page with a de-epithelialized base attached to the post-auricular sulcus and distal folding of the flap onto itself to recreate the helical rim. In addition, full restoration of the ear required cartilaginous support. The author opted for an ipsilateral conchal bowl graft harvested from a posterior approach, as this was more advantageous for development of the tunnel for the pull-through flap. The surgical technique is discussed in detail in this article. After placement of the cartilaginous strut, a large rectangular mastoid flap was incised and elevated like a book page with dissection in the superficial fat at the flap's distal end and then transitioning to a deeper plane towards the base of the flap. The portion of the flap's base that would be tunneled was de-epithelialized, making sure the width of this de-epithelialized portion was equivalent to the anticipated length of the tunnel. Rather than discarding the skin, removed to de-epithelialize the base, it was reflected downward while still left connected inferiorly, allowing it to be sewn back into place after the flap had been tunneled. The tunnel was made by detaching the skin from the underlying cartilage at the anterior medial border of the defect and connecting with the posterior ear through a gap in the conchal bowl cartilage that was created by the ipsilateral graft harvesting and that was and was sutured into place. Please refer to the article for long-term post-operative appearances. The patient did have some notching at the superior helical rim, but overall was a very reasonable outcome based on the size of the original defect. This is Michael Renzi reviewing Reconstructive Conundrum Repair of a Large Distal Nose Defect by first author Marky Swick and senior author Ian Marr. The authors present the case of a 65-year-old man with a lentigo maligna on the left nasal tip treated with Mohs resulting in a 2.4 by 2.3 centimeter defect. The patient refused a paramedian forehead flap, so the authors performed a cheek advancement flap for the nasal dorsum and sidewall components with a Burroughs full thickness skin graft for the infra tip and alar portion of the defect. The cheek advancement flap took advantage of the fairly robust central cheek tissue reservoir for repair of de defect components above the maximal height of the alar crease, thereby minimizing excess tension overlying the nasal dorsum that can lead to long-term internal nasal valve compression or saddle nose deformity. Originating the flap at the height of the alar crease allowed for all suture lines to appear at cosmetic unit and subunit junctions and kept tension parallel to the alar free margin.
The superior cone of the advancement flap was utilized for the full thickness skin graft, but before placement, 4-0 monocryl sutures were used to suspend the superior edge of the lateral cruce of the lateral lower cartilage to the underside of the inset advancement flap. This maneuver resulted in a shallower defect, mitigating the volume loss often associated with the use of full thickness skin grafts in convex nasal subunits. And I would like to refer the listeners to figure three in the article to see the follow-up at eight months. This is Christy Regula reviewing the communication, the use of acellular hydrated dermis as a biologic dressing for post-Mohs micrographic surgery wounds extending to bone by first author Barbara Mellon and senior author Christopher Arpey. Surgical wounds with bone exposure following Mohs surgery provide a challenge for wound reconstruction. This communication details the application of acellular hydrated dermis directly onto exposed bone to facilitate second intention healing. This is used in the same fashion uh, that a porcine xenograft would have been used prior to their discontinuation. Acellular cellular hydrated dermis is an acellular dermal matrices derived from human cadaveric donors. The particular product described is shelf stable for 18 months at room temperature and costs approximately $680 per sheet. It provides a wound matrix that can last months on the wound bed. The acellular hydrated dermis is placed by first undermining the skin, trimming the product, placing it under the undermined skin, and securing it into place with sutures. Standard wound care with daily dressing changes were performed. Over several weeks to months, granulation tissue forms and the product dissolves. Please see the communication for more specific details. This is Erica Levitt reviewing the communication double opposed rhombic flaps for the closure of Mohs micrographic defects on the anterior and distal lower leg by authors James Griffith and Arash Kimye Asadi. This was a retrospective case series of 252 patients with Mohs defects on the lower leg that were repaired with the double opposed rhombic flap method. The repairs were designed with two diametrically opposing equilateral triangles with apices oriented parallel to the least tension vectors. The base of each triangle was two thirds the defect diameter. Each flap was incised and transposed. I recommend reviewing the illustrations in the article for a better visualization of the flap design. The complication rate was 7%. 6% experienced partial dehiscence, but none had complete dehiscence. The average width of dehiscence compared with the original defect diameter was 39.6%. Two patients had an infection and one had a hematoma. Overall, this paper highlights a reconstruction technique that can be used for small to medium defects on the lower leg, a location notoriously difficult to reconstruct without complications. It appears to be reliable and has a relatively low complication rate. This is Deirdre Connolly reviewing the communication coverage of large bone exposed scalp defect with bone burring followed by dermal regeneration template and split thickness grafting. First author Alejandra Sandoval Clavijo, senior author Augusti Toll. The authors describe a solution to obtain immediate coverage of a large defect with loss of periosteum on the scalp by using bone burring and the application of a dermal regeneration template, Integra which involves a bilaminar membrane composed of a layer of bovine collagen with shark glycosaminoglycans covered with a silicone outer layer. 
This template promotes granulation and prepares the tissue for the application of a split thickness skin graft at a later date. The technique is especially useful on the scalp where the wound bed is not well vascularized. The first step involves bone burring where small two millimeter holes are burred at regular intervals. Authors use a high speed round cutting burr but other burring techniques have been described. Second, trim the dermal regeneration template to fit the scalp defect. Then use surgical staples to affix the template into the wound edge, placing the silicone layer outwards with antibiotic ointment applied to the edges. After two to three weeks, a creamy white yellowish exudate may develop under the outer layer, and this can be misdiagnosed as infection. However, this exudate is a normal part of the process and be, may be removed prior to skin grafting. Finally, after three to four weeks, the defect is ready for placing the split thickness skin graft. And in the figure, you can see how well the defect has granulated. This is Michael Renzi reviewing the communication, the left-handed dermatologic surgeon by first author Cassandra Ellison and senior author Michael Ramsey. Approximately 11% of Americans, 20% of men, and 8% of women are left-handed. Similar percentages of left-handers have been observed among medical professionals. In this article, the authors review some of the challenges associated with being a left-handed medical professional, specifically a surgeon. They report a lack of mentoring and laterality-related guidance in medical school and residency, citing a study which reported that only one in every 10 residency programs offered laterality-related mentoring to left-handed residents, and only 3% of these surgeons reported receiving laterality-related mentoring in medical school. Instrumentation often poses the greatest challenge for left-handed surgeons. Some important instruments express laterality, and when left-handed instruments are not available, it creates inefficiency and potential error in execution. The authors discuss how many training programs in hospitals do not offer left-handed instruments. The authors conclude discussing the benefit of ambidexterity that has been associated with left-handedness. They recommend that more programs make left-handed instruments available and for left-handed trainees to seek mentorship when available. This segment of the episode features general dermatologic surgery and cosmetic article reviews. This is Ashley Decker and I'm reviewing the original article, Evaluation of the Demographic and Clinical Features of Digital Mixoid Pseudocyst Patients and the Response to Treatment by first author Dr. Goldeichen and senior author Dr. Goon. Digital mixoid pseudocysts, or DMPs, are the most common degenerative tumors of the nail unit and are characterized by transparent or skin-colored solitary nodules most commonly located on the proximal nail fold or distal interphalangeal joint with or without nail plate changes. Treatment options include surgical excision, drainage of the cyst, laser surgery, or cryotherapy, each with varying rates of clinical response and recurrence. Despite the numerous treatment options, there is no consensus regarding first-line treatment for DMPs. In this retrospective review, the authors evaluated treatments, recurrence rates, and factors that may affect recurrences. This single-center study looked at all DMPs treated from 2013 to 2020 by a single dermatologist specializing in nail surgery. Treatment methods included no treatment, simple drainage, drainage and compression, or surgical excision with or without injection of intra-articular methylene blue. 
please refer to the article for a detailed description regarding each treatment method. 48 patients with 51 lesions were included in the study. The proximal nail fold was the most common location. A total of 44 lesions were treated, with seven lesions left untreated. 32 lesions were treated with surgical excision, 11 with drainage and compression, and one with simple drainage. The mean follow-up time for this study was 39 months. The cure rate was similar in drainage with compression compared to surgical excision at around 90%. There was no difference in the groups based on location of the DMP. There was no significant difference in recurrence with the use of intraarticular methylene blue during surgical excision. In conclusion, the author's findings support the use of drainage and compression as first-line therapy for treatment of PMDs. This treatment method is easier, does not require significant experience, and is safer than surgery. Surgical excisions should be reserved as second-line therapy for complicated, unresponsive, or recurrent lesions after direct compression. This is Deirdre Connolly reviewing the original investigation, a novel method of steroid delivery to improve the efficacy of intralesional injection and keloid treatment. First author, Mi Yan Cho. Senior author, Mi Young Ro. Authors investigated the efficacy and safety of a tunneling method of corticosteroid injection compared with conventional intralesional injection. They performed a retrospective review to compare safety and efficacy of keloid patients treated with these two separate methods out of two centers in South Korea. In the novel tunneling method, lidocaine was injected into the subcutis prior to inserting a 26-gauge needle through one entry point and then moving the needle back and forth to create numerous tunnels. And this is nicely depicted in the included figure. Tunneling is followed by injection, which is evenly distributed via the form tunnels rather than a bolus as in the conventional method. Results were evaluated in a blinded manner by an independent dermatologist to determine the observer scar assessment scale and the investigator's global assessment scores at one and six months post-treatment. Of 119 keloid patients, 61 were treated with the tunneling method and 58 with the conventional method. When comparing the two groups that were treated with the same dose of triamcinolone, 20 milligrams per ml, the scores for efficacy of the tunneling method were significantly better than those of the conventional method at one month post-treatment, with long-term efficacy scores significantly higher in the tunneling method group as well. The mean number of treatments per patient was higher in the conventional method group than in the tunneling group. And in addition, the tunneling method group showed significantly longer treatment intervals than in the conventional method group. Because follow-up was adjusted according to treatment response, it was inferred that the longer treatment interval meant greater therapeutic effect in the tunneling group. When the two groups received the same dosage were compared, the tunneling method group showed a higher IgA scores, greater improvement in the OSAS scores, fewer treatment sessions, and longer treatment intervals than the conventional method group. The tunneling method showed significantly reduced side effects, especially atrophy and telangiectasias. For the conventional injection method, operators must apply strong force to push the drug into the hard fibrotic tissue. This may cause accidental flow of the medication into the soft surrounding tissue, which can lead to atrophy of the normal dermis and subcutis. The conventional method group was subdivided into three groups, 5, 10, and 20 milligrams per ml, 
and the improvement was proportional to the dose of the steroid. However, in the tunneling method group, the 10 and 20 milligrams per ml subgroups did not show a significant difference in effectiveness. Because a lower dose showed a, fav a favorable effect, tunneling may be preferable for patients who develop side effects from keloid treatment. This is Isabella Jones reviewing safety, efficacy, and tolerability of simultaneous bilateral cryolipolysis using a rapid cycling contoured cup applicator for non-invasive fat reduction in the enlarged male breast by Munavali and Macri. This study evaluated a contoured cup applicator, otherwise known as a cool core applicator, for male pseudogynecomastia. The study included 12 Caucasian men. Patients received two treatment sessions about six weeks apart. With each session, the chest was treated simultaneously and each breast received two applicators. The first applicator was placed over the point with the highest anterior projection and the second cup placement had a 50% overlap with the first cup. Follow-up was performed six weeks after the last treatment session. Ultrasound analysis showed a significant mean fat layer reduction of 5.1 millimeters. Blinded independent reviewers correctly identified 97% of baseline and treatment photography results. Surveys revealed 100% septic satisfaction with 91% reporting visible fat reduction and 100% stating they would recommend treatment. Transient side effects included mild intertreatment discomfort, paresthesia, and tenderness. One of the 12 men did drop out of the study due to intertreatment discomfort. Although improvement in laxity has been reported after cryolipolysis, mild laxity was noted in, this, in some post-treatment photographs in the study. Of note, no subjects complained about the mild laxity post-treatment. Compared with the previous pilot study with a parallel plate applicator, the new contoured cup applicator demonstrates greater efficacy with increased tolerability, allowing for bilateral simultaneous treatment of both breasts without need for a topical anesthetic to manage procedural discomfort. This is Monica Bowen, and I'll be reviewing Buttock's Skin Laxity Severity Scale by first author Doris Hexel, last author Carolina Sega. Skin laxity in the Botox can be caused by decreased volume in the gluteus muscles and subcutaneous fat that leads to less support in the skin in this area. The goal of this study is to develop and validate a photonumeric scale to assess the skin laxity of the buttocks area. A total of 120 women were enrolled in this study in Brazil and had their buttocks photographed. A group of experienced dermatologists met to review the sample of buttocks images and they developed the buttocks skin laxity severity scale. Another group of dermatologists then met to validate this scale. So the results, what are this scale? So this is actually in a supplement. Uh, you can find how the scale looks like. So it can consists of five aspects that were graded from zero to three, from absent to severe. The five aspects were buttocks ptosis, skin scalloped appearance, linear depressed lesions, infragluteal fold, 
and localized fat on the lower half of the buttocks. So this is similar to the um, melasma severity scar or the Mopasi. Um, and the final skin laxity classification is obtained by the sum of each item grade multiplied by its weight, so a special formula, and that yields a score from zero to 24. And the scale validity was confirmed through statistical analysis. So in conclusion, scales like this one, the buttocks skin's laxity severity scale, can be useful in clinical trials to assess efficacy of body contouring treatments. Um, and unfortunately, it is hard to photograph skin laxity. And this scale does seem to encompass a variety of components of skin laxity to help with assessment. And this scale is a reliable and validated scale to identify skin laxity severity and its different features and is the only scale to take these different factors into account. This is Monica Bowen and I'll be reviewing comprehensive evaluation of the lower eyelid aging process among Asian women by first author Chun Yu Cheng, last author Yao Li Huang. So the lower eyelid aging is a complex process that involves remodeling of the cranial bones, tissue descent secondary to gravity, volume loss, and weakening of the orbital septa. Thus, a comprehensive assessment can be useful before lower eyelid treatment. The goal of this study was to assess and classify lower eyelid Asian aging in a group of Asian women. The authors developed a comprehensive lower eyelid age rating scale that they called CLEARS that consists of three domains that are composed of three items. So the first domain is skin laxity, which includes the SNAP test, which is where you pull the lower eyelid down from the eye and see if it snaps back into normal position as it should in a youthful eye. The other ones are from the laxity are distraction test and fine lines. The second domain are the grooves of the eye, which consist of mesojugal groove, mid cheek furrow, and palbromalar groove. And these were scaled from no groove to severe volume loss, severe depression of the grooves. The third domain is protrusion which they define as protrusion of the pretarsal roll, the eye bag, and the malar mound, also scored from zero to three. And there's a great figure, figure one, that shows each of these anatomical features on a patient. A total of 114 Taiwanese women were evaluated that were between 21 and 75 years old. And the scores from the CLEARS evaluation increased with each age group, as expected, and unfortunately did show that lower eyelid aging does start in the third decade. Interrater variability was good for all domains. So the authors intend for this CLEARS scale to be a general purpose assessment tool that can be used in a variety of clinical investigations that contains both dynamic and static assessments. They showed that Lower eyelid aging starts, unfortunately, in your 30s and progresses with age. They do note that further studies are warranted to validate the clinical applications of this rating scale. This is Isabella Jones reviewing 
cutaneous vascular compromise, and resolution of skin barrier breakdown following dermal filler occlusion, implementation of evidence-based recommendations into real-world clinical practice by Jameson Layal and Mitch Goldman. The authors who practice at a large cosmetic dermatology clinic provide their expertise in a unifying protocol to recognize and treat cutaneous vascular compromise and skin barrier breakdown. I highly encourage listeners to perform filler injections to read the article in its entirety. They first review how to recognize vascular occlusion. Immediately after occlusion, blanching, disproportionate pain, and slow capillary refill can be seen. Normal capillary refill is when the skin returns to a normal pink hue within one to two seconds after letting go of pressure. Blanching can be difficult to notice if epinephrine is used. Minutes to hours after the occlusion, a reticular or lividoid pattern can be seen or sometimes blue-gray discoloration. On or around day three, blistering occurs, which then turns to crusting. On or around day six, necrosis occurs, which then leads to sloughing, and it can take up to six weeks to heal. Then they go over treatment. Hyaluronidase is the most important part of treatment if it is an HA filler. However, it can also help non-HA filler occlusion by dissolving the gel carrier or by decreasing skin turgor. Figure 2 has a protocol I encourage readers to print or adapt. They recommend injecting 100 to 200 units at least hourly into the area of ischemia. You may need higher doses for highly cross-linked fillers. Vitrase has ovine proteins and may cause allergic reactions, but if it's the only hyaluronidase available, do not wait to test for allergy prior to using it. They encourage massaging the area and using warm compresses to maximize contact between the filler and the hyaluronidase and to help vasodilate. They discourage using sodium thiosulfate for vascular occlusion due to calcium hydroxyapatite for various reasons. They do encourage the use of aspirin 325 milligrams once daily until the occlusion has resolved. A phosphodiesterase inhibitor like sildenafil can be used if the ischemic area is large, but has contraindications as it can cause hypotension. They do recommend using doxycycline 100 milligrams twice daily for 14 days for its anti-inflammatory activity. They discourage the use of nitroglycerin unless it's a non-HA filler, and they do recommend the settings to use for that. It's important to keep the patient in clinic until you have achieved normal skin color, no pain, a normal capillary refill. In the author's experience, most occlusions resolve after three to four rounds of using hyaluronidase. You should assess the patient every 24 hours until the occlusion has resolved and there's no skin breakdown. They mentioned the use of ultrasound to identify the obstruction and to help figure out where to inject hyaluronidase. If skin breakdown does occur, the authors feel there's no rule for hyaluronidase after day three to six since the damage has already been done.
they do recommend using a hydrocolloid dressing or petroleum or dimethicone-based ointment. Hyperbaric oxygen can promote angiogenesis and collagen maturation, and they encourage readers to locate the nearest hyperbaric oxygen site. Pulse dye laser can be used to help scarring once the wound has epithelialized. The authors also mentioned the importance of training the entire staff for these situations, and they go over what staff can do during the occlusion protocol. Finally, they recommend having protocols to deal with patient phone calls, which may indicate a vascular occlusion. This is Deirdre Hooper reviewing the original article, Pravobotulinum Toxin A for Treatment of Millennials with Moderate to Severe Glabellar Lines, Post Hoc Analysis of the Phase 3 Clinical Study Data by lead author Patricia Ogilvy and senior author Jean Carruthers. As background for this paper, the authors note that millennials consider aesthetic procedures to be part of normal life and that they are a large patient cohort for neurotoxin procedures. So what they did in this paper was pool the data from three separate pivotal trials that resulted in the approval of probobotulinum toxin A, trade name Juveau, and looked to see if the product worked differently in millennials. A total of 67 millennials were identified. They had a mean age of 28. Most had severe glabellar lines at maximum frown, but as might be expected in this young population, only 3% had severe lines at rest, and only 14% had moderate lines at rest. When they looked at outcomes, overall, the millennials' response was higher than non-millennials in all endpoints at all time points. So these endpoints included greater than or equal to one point improvement at maximum frown at many time points. Also, the percent who achieved a score of zero or one at maximum frown. Also, the GAIS and the patient satisfaction. Now, the only note of statistical significance was on that greater than or equal to one point improvement at maximum frown, which became statistically superior in millennials at day 90 and continued through day 150. The overall incidence of adverse events assessed by the investigators treatment-related was higher in millennials at 16% versus 13% in non-millennials. The most common treatment-related adverse event was headache. In the discussion, the authors conclude that 20 units of probobotulinum toxin A is a highly effective treatment for moderate to severe glabellar lines in the millennial population. They postulate that this product may have a faster onset and longer duration of effect in millennials, perhaps because these patients have fewer and less advanced age-related physiologic changes. They point out that further studies will be needed to see if, as they age, early millennial adopters ultimately experience better long-term outcomes. They do point out that while patients in these studies were administered 20 units of toxin, this dose is not necessarily in keeping with current clinical practice of lower doses in younger patients. This is Ashley Decker reviewing the communication, radiation tattoo removal, a previously overlooked topic, by first author Dr. Jacqueline Watchmaker and senior author Dr. Kenneth Arndt. Prior to radiation treatment, patients often receive skin markings with permanent ink. 
This may be in cosmetically sensitive areas surrounding the area to be radiated, and recent literature suggests radiation tattoos can cause psychological distress and contribute to body image dissatisfaction. In 2014, the American Society for Laser Medicine and Surgery, or ASLAMS, launched New Beginnings, radiation mark removal program to help patients bothered by their radiation tattoos. This program connects cancer survivors with board-certified ASLAM members who volunteer their time and devices to remove radiation tattoos free of charge. In their survey study, a three-question survey was sent to all 117 active physician members of the New Beginnings program to determine how many patients have been treated by the program, the average number of treatment sessions required to adequately remove the tattoos, and to determine the most common laser used. Based on the results of the survey, it is estimated approximately 1,200 patients have been treated with the New Beginnings program. The majority of these patients underwent one to three treatment sessions. The 1064, 1064 nanometer picosecond laser and the 1064 nanosecond laser were most commonly used, followed by the 755 nanosecond and picosecond lasers. Blue and black ink are most commonly used for radiation tattoos and are amenable to treatment with the blue and black pigment-specific lasers, including the 755 Alexandre and the 1064 NDAG. The 1064 wavelength has the added benefit of being safer in patients of color or those with extensive dyschromia or lentigenes. As someone who works at a cancer center and frequently sees cancer survivors, I will definitely keep this program in mind moving forward. This is Christy Regula reviewing the communication. Pylonidal sinus is like an ordinary abscess and should be treated like one. By first author Pankaj Garge and senior author Sushil Dhaka. This communication describes the author's treatment of pylonidal sinuses with deroofing the sinus and curataging under local anesthesia. The authors prefer this method to other procedures that create a contour flattening of the upper buttocks and wide local excision of the area. This relatively simple procedure is performed by administering local anesthesia, probing the tract, and using electrocautery to incise the skin over the tract. Debris and hair is removed from the sinus using a curette. However, no marsupialization is performed. The overlying skin edges are then trimmed and the wound is packed lightly with gauze. Recurrence rates as low as 4.47% have been repeat, reported for this method. And please see the communication for further details. This is Erica Levitt reviewing the communication chronic pressure ulcer treatment using a combination of stromal vascular fraction and split thickness skin grafting by authors Tony Sapala and Susanna Cohenen. This is a case report of a 54-year-old man with a history of lower limb paraplegia due to a spinal cord injury and history of smoking who presented with bilateral iatrogenic pressure ulcers in the Achilles tendon region on the left foot and the dorsum of the right foot that were caused due to lower limb plaster casts. Wound healing had been prolonged for over two years and the patient had failed multiple revision surgeries with split thickness skin grafts, wound care, compression, and antibiotics to treat pseudomonas colonization. The patient was treated in this case report with a successful combination of stromal vascular fraction and split thickness skin grafts to both wounds. 
Stromal vascular fraction is a collection of stem cells, endothelial precursor cells, T-regulatory cells, macrophages, and others. It is harvested from autologous fat cells. Please see the article's detailed description of the extraction process if interested. The SVF was infiltrated beneath the wound beds and into the wound edges and was placed on top of the split thickness skin graft. The patient had successful epithelialization at one month postoperatively. Research into the regenerative properties of SVF is in the early stage, but this case report suggests that the technique may be beneficial when combined with a split thickness skin graft for difficult wounds. This is Isabella Jones presenting Late Onset Filler-Induced Granuloma After Polycrapolactone-Based Filler Treated with High-Intensity Focus Ultrasound and Quantum Molecular Resonance Technology by Hong and Kim. This report described a 51-year-old female who presented with a PLC filler-induced foreign body granuloma 10 years after injection into the perioral region. On ultrasound, the lesion measured 0.89 centimeters and was present about 0.5 centimeters below the epidermis. The patient was treated with a non-invasive combination approach consisting of five sessions at two-week intervals with successful resolution of the nodule. The approach combined number one, systemic antibiotic therapy, number two, high foot at a depth of 4.5 and 5 millimeters, and number three, quantum molecular resonance technology, which induces molecular resonance energy that affects molecular bonds and results in cellular regeneration. For those interested, the authors describe the exact settings used for each device. This is Deirdre Hooper reviewing characterizing ocular adverse events after facial dermal filler injection, reviewing the MOD database by Margie Juhaz and Joel Cohen. The authors reviewed the US FDA's manufacturer and user facility device experience database to look at reported ocular injuries after dermal filler injection into the face between 1980 and 2020. Of 6,510 AEs, 0.9% or 57 AEs reported signs and symptoms consistent with ocular injury. These did contain a total of 85 affected patients because some reports contain, contain more than one patient. It was most frequently after hyaluronic acid filler, 75%, followed by calcium hydroxyapatite at 16% and polyolactic acid at 9%. The most common area of injection was periorbital, including tear trough, followed by nose and glabella. All patients complained of visual disturbance, including change in vision, blurred vision, or double vision. 14 had pain, 12 had headache, 12 had skin changes. Five patients had concurrent stroke-like symptoms, and one patient died due to cerebral infarction. The authors go on just to remind us that although ocular injury resulting from filler injection is worrisome, it is exceedingly rare. We should be careful, have a plan. If we have a patient who has visual impairment, we should assess quickly, one eye at a time, and have an emergency team, including an ophthalmologist. Limitations of the article include its retrospective nature and the accuracy of MOD data. So the authors encourage us to report to the MOD database whenever com complications associated with filler injection occur to ensure that data capture is reliable and accurate. This is Monica Bowen, and I'll be reviewing vision loss after platelet-rich plasma injections, a systemic review by Sean Wu and Robert Weiss. 
platelet-rich plasma, or PRP, has been used in dermatology to treat hair loss and for skin rejuvenation, and this consists of highly concentrated platelets and growth factors. So while PRP is generally regarded to be safe, there have been some case reports in the literatures that have shown adverse events such as blindness. The authors reviewed the PubMed database for PRP-related blindness and found seven cases, and most of them were for rejuvenation of the face. The location of the PRP injections that caused blindness were most on the glabella, such as fillers, so five on the glabella, two on the forehead, one in the lateral canthus, one in the nasolabial fold, and even one, surprisingly, in the TMJ. So associated symptoms were ocular pain, headache, nausea, and vomiting. Unfortunately, only one of the seven cases had full recovery of visual acuity, and this was after treatment by an ophthalmologist within three hours. The authors speculate that highly concentrated platelets can act as a proagulant, and perhaps we should inject PRP with the same precautions as soft tissue fillers. Early evaluation treatment may be helpful in cases of partial vision loss if this occurs after PRP injection. This is Monica Bowen, and I'll be reviewing use of botulinum toxin and hyaluronic acid filler to treat oral involvement in scleroderma by Helen Kumsky and Alika Haas from the Mayo Clinic in Arizona. The authors present a patient who is 42 years old and has a long-standing history of systemic sclerosis and who had a considerable oral involvement with perioral tightness that was impairing her ability to eat and drink. She was not taking any medications for her systemic sclerosis at the time. The authors treated the patient with 20 units of a neuromodulator in the orbicularis oris and 1.6 cc's of a hyaluronic acid filler in the lips. And at one month follow-up, the patient had improvement in eating, drinking, and food retention. So the combination of a neuromodulator and hyaluronic acid filler have improved both microstomia and oral incompetence in scleroderma. The patient found this treatment modality to be easily tolerated and effective with subsequent improvement in her quality of life. This is Deirdre Hooper reviewing ancillary techniques to relieve the pain associated with botulinum injections for pulmonary and plantar hyperhidrosis by Seth Matarasso. As we know, one of the limiting factors of injecting neurotoxins in into palmo and plantar surfaces is the significant pain. And Dr. Matarasso uses as his first reference a paper that was in the December 2021 derm surgery by Sarah Nasser and Jeff Potts that gives techniques to relieve pain and he expounds upon them. Number one, topical anesthetics. In addition to using them, he suggests using socks and disposable gloves to keep the products in place for longer periods of time. Number two, ice or cryoanalgesia. He recommends that you use the ice directly on top of the occluded topical preparation while numbing and then again immediately before needle insertion. Third tip, if you have access to a Zimmer cooling system, there is a focus tip that can convert ambient air to sub-zero temperature. Number four, using vibratory devices, he suggests allowing the patient to actively participate, which gives them some control over the process. He 
finally mentions the use of nitrous oxide gas and as an overview, suggests that all of these pain techniques in combination can diminish inadvertent patient movement and the total duration of the procedure, therefore helping in pain management. This is Isabella Jones presenting treatment of post-burn scar erythema and dyschromia with pulse dye and Q-stretch KTP laser by Woods and Shelley. This study was performed at a hospital burn unit in Dublin, Ireland. It was a prospective cohort study of 21 patients receiving laser treatment from 2013 to 2017 for burn scar erythema and or dyschromia. Erythema was treated with a 595 nanometer PDL and dyschromia with a 523 Q-stretched laser. Treatment was continued until either the patient or the clinician agreed that no further improvement was being achieved with the scar. The median interval between burn injury and commencement of treatment was 19 months. Patients received a median of six treatments, four to six weeks apart. The study showed significant improvement in the patient and observer scar assessment scale. The authors point out that most prior studies have focused on ablative lasers, but this study has confirmed that PDL is successful for post-burn erythema and Q-switch KTP for, for post-burn hyperpigmentation. Thank you for listening to Derm Surgery Digest, the official podcast of the Dermatologic Surgery Journal. To access these featured articles, author videos, and much more, visit journals.lww.com slash dermatologic surgery. To learn more about the American Society for Dermatologic Surgery, visit asds.net.